Enchanted Island. Yeah, I, I remember it like it was yesterday. I mean, I'm always reminiscing with Willie and the Bees. That's folk and blues icon Bonnie Raitt, and this is The Current Rewind, the podcast that puts unsung music stories on the map. I'm Andrea Swenson, back with Side B of our first season. Over the next few weeks, we'll take you to a Great Lakes industry town with a dark side, and back to the 80s with a story of anti-rock crusaders. But today, we're zooming in on the early years of Bonnie Raitt. performers over the last 50 years of rock have been more widely beloved than singer and guitarist Bonnie Raitt. Writing and covering a wide variety of styles from folk to blues to rock, she has, as much as anybody, defined the roots-oriented sound of Americana. She's known for the hits I Can't Make You Love Me and Something to Talk About. In 1990, her album Nick of Time swept the Grammy Awards and made her a household name. But the story of Bonnie Raitt's recording career began way back in 1971, and it began in Minnesota. For this episode of The Current Rewind, we spoke with several of the musicians who played on Bonnie Raitt's self-titled album from 1971, as well as a couple writers and Raitt's bass player from the 70s. One person we didn't get to talk to, unfortunately, was Bonnie herself, whose schedule didn't allow her time. So we've relied on a couple of old interviews, one with NPR's Ann Powers in 2012 and one with The Current's Bill DeVille in 2013 to get her side of the story. While it isn't the best known of her albums, Bonnie Raitt's self-titled debut was a clear statement of purpose from a soon-to-be major artist. She was only 21, but her song choices drew deep from the wells of blues, folk, rock, and R&B music. Her singing and stage presence had turned heads since she began performing. By the summer of 1971, Warner Brothers Records, who specialized in singer-songwriters like her, was ready to put her out in the world. And that's how Bonnie Raitt came to the West Bank neighborhood of Minneapolis, also known as Cedar Riverside, because that's where she could go to find other musicians who were in the habit of ignoring genre rules and going for the gut, just like she did. Bonnie Raitt was born into showbiz. Her father was the Broadway musical leading man John Raitt, star of Oklahoma and other 50s hits from The Great White Way. But as she told The Current's Bill DeVille, Ray was looking for something else when it came time to make her first album. You know, it's Austin and New Orleans and Minneapolis, St. Paul are the three cities that have been multiracial in their music scene for all this time. That's why I wanted to make my first record there. John Kerner and Dave Ray were playing out on the East Coast folk circuit. And Bonnie was playing out there, too. Maurice Jaycox was the saxophonist for Willie and the Bees, the band who backed Bonnie Raitt on her first album. And so she got a Warner Brothers contract, and the contract was for $40,000. And she asked people that she trusted, Kerner and, and Dave Ray, and said, I've got this contract. What? What do you think I should do? I'm supposed to make an album. I want to make a blues album. Got any suggestions on how I should go about doing this? And they both said, well, you've got some friends back in Minneapolis that might be right up your alley. You got to come out there and see what's, what's happening out there. So Bonnie actually flew out here 
and hung around the West Bank for about a week or so and shot pool, drank beer, drank liquor, played pinball for about four or five days and did a lot of talking. She was known to hang out with uh, people at the various West Bank hotspots. Sin Collins is the author of West Bank Boogie, a history of the Cedar Riverside folk and blues scene. She would hang out at Palmer's Bar doing New York Times crossword puzzles with Spider John Kerner on a daily basis while Flo attended bar. In fact, an autographed photo of Bonnie still hangs at Palmer's to this day. Willie Murphy would say that she uh, was seen regularly at uh, various places around the West Bank, the New Riverside Cafe, the Firehouse, which is now the Mixed Blood Theater. And she performed at the New Riverside Cafe and Firehouse and other places. She came out here and she stayed at my house. We actually slept together in the same bed and went out every morning <laughs> looking for a good place to put the studio to make the record. That's the late Willie Murphy speaking to me in 2014. He produced Bonnie's debut album and was the notoriously strong-willed, gruff but beloved leader of Willie and the Bumblebees. Fans often just called them the Bees. It's gonna be sweet like from the bees. After that, Bonnie just went, this is the band. At first, the group wanted to record in the countryside, but they hit a snag. Nobody would rent us a farm because we were a mixed race, bunch of raggly hippies and blues guys. And uh, Dave Ray and Sylvia, his wife at the time, they found this guy that had a remedial reading summer camp. And I guess it was isolated enough that they would they let us just take it over. So it was about, not Animal House, but it was it was very much like a summer camp. It was just a blast. The West Bank had been considered blighted during the 40s and had become part of Skid Row during the 50s, thanks partly to the freeway system intruding on the area, cutting it off from downtown. This relative isolation and its proximity to the University of Minnesota campus made the West Bank perfect for the burgeoning counterculture. First beatniks, then hippies began moving to the area. By the early 70s, the Electric Fetus, a record store and head shop catering to a hippie crowd, had opened up there. In 1972, it would stage a so-called naked sale. Don't ask. I mean, I think I probably had my first drink in Palmer's Bar in 1963 or 4 or something like that. So it's been well over five decades that I've been watching the, the West Bank. The blues and folk singer Spider John Kerner has been one of the West Bank's most visible musicians ever since. First on the West Bank, it was just kind of working people. There was, there was lots of bars. There's like probably half a dozen up and down the avenue there. Here were some black bars up around this corner, seven corners up there. There was the Key Club and south of the border, and you could go down there and see some of the top uh, blues uh, performers out of, coming through Chicago and like that. It was a, a good mixture. And then came along the hippie era. If you left your wallet on the bar, there's a 50-50 chance somebody would bring it back to you kind of thing rather than getting picked up by somebody. We were not hippies. 
Saxophonist Eugene Hoffman had dropped out of the University of Minnesota and began playing with all sorts of musicians on the West Bank in the mid-60s. Even though Willie, in one of his last interviews, said at heart he was happy, really, we were all in between the beatniks and the hippies. The neighborhood had been blown wide open because it was the Haight-Ashbury of, um, of Minnesota. Fourth and Cedar, there was a place. This Richter pharmacist was very um, lenient on the hippies, and people were uh, always coming in there, and they were like, dealing drugs on the corner, all kinds of people. What the West Bank had quickly become in about 66 was just a lot of houses of university students. West Bank boogie author Sin Collins recalled how eclectic audiences could be. It was a very diverse crowd. People would say that on any given night at the Triangle Bar, you would have uh, Black Panthers, AIM activists, and bikers and hippies all in the same place. Of course, fights would break out. It was a wild scene. Sound like very, very vibrant and busy and active. Maurice Jaycox chimed in on the bar scene, too. In the old days back in the 60s, there had always been the Triangle Bar. And up on Seven Corners, there was a bar called the Mixers. And all the intellectuals and pseudo-intellectuals and rabble-rousers got together at the mixers and talked and drank and talked and drank and politicized and plotted and did everything radicals were supposed to do back in those days. I had known Willie Murphy since high school and didn't like him a whole lot. A hard man to work with and a hard man to know, very complex man. Uh, he could be incredibly thoughtless and uh, overly critical of everything and everybody and absolute control freak and had to run everything that he did. And it was your job to figure out that he loved you and <laughs> that you, you wouldn't be there if he didn't specifically want you personally there. And uh, I moved to San Francisco in 67 and came back here. And uh, while I'd been gone in San Francisco, um, Willie Murphy teamed up with Spider John Kerner. And they had their record running, jumping, standing still for Electra Records. And it's a fantastic, groundbreaking album. And I'd always loved John Kerner's music. People were having a lot of fun. And most of the people were fairly well-educated and uh, kindred spirits, uh, open in their musical tastes and open to different ideas and different music. That's why John Kerner and Willie Murphy's album was so great. Running, Jumping, Standing still had uh, elements of Murphy's funk and R&B background and John Kerner's kind of country foot stomping things, you know, and it, the blending them together is pretty amazing. In fact, uh, one of John Kerner's songs is one of my favorite songs on Bonnie's album that we did called I Ain't Blue. He used to love to hear John at the Triangle Bar just singing, playing the song by himself. Yes, I ain't blue. I'm just Following 
the success of Running, Jumping, Standing Still, Willie Murphy was offered a house producer job with Elektra Records, but he turned it down to stay in Minneapolis. He'd begun leading jam sessions, both in Cedar Riverside and at his home near 26th Street and Nicolet Avenue. And in 1970, he convened a meeting. Willie just looked at all of us when we were in John Beach's living room and he said, you know, we're start, I'm starting a band here. If you want to make money with this, you might as well leave right now because we're going to just play kick-ass dance music and originals and like James Brown. We weren't trying to specifically be a mixed band. He just reached out to the people that he wanted to have in a band. And the fact that, you know, it was an integrated band didn't matter to him. And there was a time in Minneapolis, uh, right into the mid to late 60s, when no black band could get work in Minneapolis. No black could be in a band in downtown Minneapolis. And then that started to change around 67 or 68. There was a band called the Amazers that had a white drummer and uh, they build him as an albino. The drummer who went on to play with Sly and the Family Stone and Robin Trower, Bill Lorden was his name. And Murphy played in some of these bands playing bass, the only white guy in a black band. And that's how they got into some of these clubs, at least having one white guy in the band. The musicians were doing it for love because the money wasn't especially good. We were making almost nothing. I have my old calendars here and I look at them occasionally probably less than $12 a night and Willie never took a leader's fee ever when we opened up all these bars the reason we got $12 a night is they had us over a barrel they, these bar owners would say well we're used to paying a, a three piece in the early days you could have a seven or eight piece band playing for $200 period for the whole band. And that went on for decades. Spider John Kerner and Willie Murphy both recalled that they were playing out east when they first met Bonnie Raitt. The reason she got hooked up with Dave Ray's outfit and so was Willie might have been at my suggestion because I don't think she knew the scene out here particularly before she met me. I met Bonnie Raitt. Kerner and I, when we played together in the 60s, and we played a lot in Boston. That was sort of our second home. So she had gone to school or was going to school at was it Radcliffe, one of those big schools. So she was a fan of ours. And she was an aspiring player and singer herself. Bonnie Raitt was born in Burbank, California, but she moved east while her father sang his way through a slate of hit musicals, Oklahoma, Carousel, Annie Get Your Gun, and Kiss Me Kate. The Raitt family were practicing Quakers, and as Eugene Hoffman saw firsthand, social activism has remained a bedrock part of Bonnie's life. I quickly saw that no matter where she went, she always knew and still does what's going on in that town or that neighborhood politically and she would read the New York Times before she even had breakfast you know and I'm sure she still does that. 
Bonnie got her first guitar at age eight as a Christmas gift. She was playing her grandfather's slide guitar by age 10 and owned a red gilled gut string acoustic. While her parents were away on tour, the family's maid would bring over her family and their records, turning Bonnie and her brothers on to the music of Jimmy Reed and Ike and Tina Turner. At 14, she became a blues devotee, and as a teenager, she got involved with folk music. At the 2012 Americana Music Conference, Bonnie told writer Ann Powers that her eclectic tastes were deeply rooted. You know, it's it just second nature to me. I, I, you know, part of it is being raised in a musical family that had a broad range of tastes. We, we were exposed to... Mahalia Jackson and Louis Armstrong and Art Tatum, as well as my dad's entire Broadway world. There was a cultural upheaval between beat music and beatniks and, you know, the counterculture that was happening. I'm a child of my time, so I I don't think it's particularly surprising that I liked Lenny Welch's Since I Fell for You next to Bluebird by the Buffalo Springfield next to Sippy Wallace. I just, I love folk music. I came out of summer camp with counselors leading us and uh, emulating Joan Baez, and of mm. course I wanted to be like both of them. So I fell in love with R&B and rock and roll at the same time as a little kid. I could tell the difference between Little Richard's version and Pat Boone's, you know? <laughs> we'll have more from Bonnie Raitt on the making of her first album after this break. So far, we've talked about the West Bank music scene that was cultivated in the late 60s, which would provide inspiration and a musical backbone for Bonnie Raitt's debut album. While Willie Murphy was finding his voice in Minneapolis, Bonnie Raitt was enrolled at Radcliffe College in Massachusetts, majoring in African studies. But soon she was spending time in Philadelphia with Dick Waterman, the manager of a number of bluesmen whose careers had been revived in the 60s, such as Sunhouse, Mississippi Fred McDowell, and the duo of Buddy Guy and Junior Wells. Soon Waterman, who was 33, was dating 18-year-old Rate, and she was picking up playing tips from his roster. She began performing as an opening act, and while she was learning from the masters, as critic Julie Height notes, she was also proving she belonged in their world. I, I mean, I several years ago interviewed the singer-songwriter and guitarist Chris Smither, who knew her in those early years. He said he was just blown away one day. He had no idea that she was a guitarist, much less a serious guitarist, and then heard her play bottleneck and was really impressed and instantly, you know, took her seriously. In 1970, Bonnie took a semester off from school to go along with Waterman on a European Rolling Stones tour, which Buddy Guy and Junior Wells were opening. That meant she missed the deadline to register for her next semester, and Bonnie's parents cut her off financially. She would later say that if she had registered for school in time, her entire musical career might not have happened. Right away, Bonnie's repertoire came together. Her first night on stage at Philadelphia's Second Fret, she played nearly everything that would make her debut album. Two of the songs were from the sly, sexy blueswoman Sippy Wallace. I've come to you, pretty papa, falling on my knees.
she did a couple of Sippy Wallace songs on that first album um, and would eventually go on to befriend Sippy Wallace and bring her on tour and, you know, draw more attention to her work. But she, I think, was really thrilled to find, um, you know, a blues diva who had this repertoire of songs that were very sexually liberated and were very forward, you know, and also very wry and tongue-in-cheek. That really appealed to her feminist sensibilities and the kinds of songs she wanted to be doing. Rate was definitely in control, even as her stage presence was unapologetically raunchy. The first time the singer-songwriter Jackson Brown saw Bonnie, he compared her to a teenage Mae West. Soon she was doing well enough to hire a bassist who called himself Freebo. He'd previously played with the Philadelphia Rockers, the Edison Electric Band, who were also managed by Dick Waterman. I remember seeing her in a solo acoustic, and where she was wonderful, and I loved her. She was super cute, and he had that, that incredible voice, beautiful voice. And it was about a year after that, but she called me. We probably did a, a month or two worth of gigs, May and June, before uh, they came out to Minneapolis and and made that record. I became friends with Freebro throughout those first 10 years, and he would come to town with Bonnie, and he always had a pouch of the strongest weed on his belt, you know, and he and I would always do that with a few other people. Soon, Rate was attracting critical attention. In February of 1971, she was flown to Los Angeles to play The Troubadour, an industry hangout where Linda Ronstadt, The Eagles, and Joni Mitchell were regulars. Afterward, she fielded offers from five different record labels. Bonnie went with Warner Brothers. As she told Dave Ray, the contract meant that, quote, she could record an album of bullfrogs croaking and they would have had to take it. They gave her complete artistic control. When they offered me a record deal and I said, if as long as I don't have to make hit singles or change the way I look or record what you want me to record. You can't tell me when, with whom, or what to record. And I don't care about being a star if you're okay with that. And they said... And Warner Brothers said, you know what? We make our living from Deep Purple and Black Sabbath to pay for Randy Newman, Ry Cooter, you, and Little Feet. You know what I mean? Those were the days. And that was why... I mean, who, and I said, if you really want to give me, you know, the keys to the car and I don't care about an advance, I'll make the money. What I don't spend on the first record, they gave me 40 grand. I bought a Volvo. Whoa. (laughs) And the rest of it went to, you know, Snaker Dave Ray's record label and spread out among the musicians in Minneapolis where I did it. Dave and Sylvia Ray had purchased their equipment only a few months prior to Bonnie Raitt's arrival in town. Rather than the kind of high-end, 16-track recording gear that was the norm by 1971, the Rays bought a simple four-track recorder. Oh, Jane Truex, Sylvia's aunt, loaned Dave the money to buy the Crown recording machine that we used. With the money we made out the album paid Jane off and started his own record company, which he called Sweet Jane Records, named after her. Where the band recorded is a story of its own. The album credits the recording location as Sweet Jane Limited Studios, but the actual site was a garage on Enchanted Island, a small patch of land in Lake Minnetonka, 25 miles west of Minneapolis in the town of Minnetrista. The island gets its name from its history as a Dakota holy ground. 
These days, it's home to private residences and a yacht club. It was picking up rustic, funky, a lot of wood. What became the studio was sort of like an empty room. We just created it with baffles and microphones and had the piano in there. had a tack upright piano and, and our amplifiers, drums. Created a studio out of it. Everybody brought all their friends. It was a big uh, free-for-all every, every night. Bonnie sat up in her room, which is on the cover of the album. We kept coming out every night. It was a long drive, bringing more and more friends. People brought whomever they were seeing at that time. They brought them out there. I, oh, yeah, I brought someone out once or twice. That's true. There were these cabins. You could find a cabin of your own for the night. And a lot of good food uh, cooked in the communal kitchen at the lodge house. And, you know, 20 pounds of fried chicken, you know. <laughs> oh, God, a lot of food. Ate at long, big, long tables. It was a great place to come and hang. Bonnie brought her brother Steve and Steve's wife Joyce. And Joyce did all the cooking. We lived in the cabins there at the camp and we water skied and played volleyball and ate great food I think we were out there for probably at least a month but uh, it was like people would get up in the morning and fish off the dock <laughs> and uh, after a couple of weeks of more or less horsing around but I was actually kind of getting the music together I said, don't you think we should start recording? <laughs> and we did, and it was, I think it's a really good album. Yeah. And we did most of the recording between the hours of midnight or one o'clock in the morning and six o'clock in the morning because the lake was really quiet then. And also... Staying up, drinking, and playing all night. People kind of slept till summertime in the afternoon before they started moving for the day. We d recorded in the garage and outside the garage. And the Crown recording machines that Dave bought were upstairs. The microphone had to be adjusted. Dave had to come down the stairs into the garage and adjust the microphone and go back upstairs and listen to it. Sometimes he'd go up and down 30 times in a session. And there were quite a few times of finest loving man, take 15. Dave Ray uh, went into the garage and then put a Crown 4 track together on a loft in the garage. And then uh, the horns would play out in the parking lot and since it was a four track it was live there was no overdubbing and a plane would go over and we'd have to stop playing bonnie willie and the bees left a strong impression on area residents i have a lot of people that actually live out on the lake that run come backstage and say hi to me in different places in the uh, the other night we just played down here and um in San Diego County, and somebody came up and said, I, I used to live down the street from where you made your first album, so it's, it's an indelible part of my, my history. We talked to the West Tonka Historical Society, our friends from the Andrews Sisters episode we shared earlier this season, and they gave us a typed-up copy of this story from Minnetrista resident John Maxwell, which we've edited slightly. 
Here's what he remembered about living next door to Bonnie and the Bees, as read by our colleague Jay Gabler. It was the summer of 1971, and Bonnie Raitt and many musicians were holed up in a tiny two-story white garage next door to us at 4000 Enchanted Lane. It was an abandoned summer reading camp, if I recall. My dad used to mow our grass weekly on a rather loud John Deere riding lawnmower that would come very close to that white garage. Then, one August afternoon, a red-haired gal strolled up to my dad and flagged him down to chat. She explained that her and her band were trying to record music onto audio tape and that his mowing sounds kept getting onto the audio tape. They had a friendly diplomatic talk, and he agreed to mow on certain days or hours of the week. I can't remember the exact details. If she would reciprocate by not producing very loud music in the middle of the night because it was affecting our family and our sleep. He had to get up for work at 3.30 a.m. every morning, and they would be over there next door jamming till dawn. I personally can still remember the shrieks of a harmonica piercing through my bedroom walls at night. One of the songs the band was jamming on was Big Road, originally recorded in 1928 by the Delta bluesman Tommy Johnson, who later inspired the character of the same name in the Coen Brothers film Old Brother, Where Art Thou? For the recording of Johnson's Big Road, Freebo played his original instrument, the tuba. So it was her suggestion to play tuba on that. And so uh, I somehow, I don't remember who had the tuba, but I borrowed it from somebody. And, uh, and I wound up playing tuba on each of the first six records. The arrangements of other songs were equally experimental. On that song, I Blew, the John Kerner song, we were trying to come up with something for percussion. We didn't want to use drums. Congas didn't sound good. Bongos didn't sound good. Clave didn't sound good. We just wanted this this laid-back thing, the guitar and Bonnie singing. We're trying to do I Ain't Blue and come up with a sound that would be appropriate percussion. And we ended up taking, since we've been playing badminton, taking the shuttlecock from badminton and a 16-ounce beer cup. And people went like that quietly. And then running the shuttlecock around the cup and holding it up to the mic. Soon, Bonnie and the Bees were joined by some out-of-town guests. Eugene Hoffman remembers playing with a couple of classic Chicago bluesmen. Junior Wells came up with his chauffeur, Bob, who's the big heavyset guy in the back of the album, way on the right the picture a uh, big Cadillac. He sat out there on that dock while we were making the record, uh, fishing for uh, little crappies and sunnies for a whole month. I sat on the porch with A.C. Reed, you know, Jimmy Reed's brother. He was really not that well-known, but he was a staple in Chicago, sax player. You know, he put out some of his own records later, but it just, everybody was blown away. I don't know if Willie was, but everybody else was blown away because we were sitting on the front porch when, you know, brother, brother, Marvin Gaye's What's Going On came out. That was kind of some landmark moment. Trumpeter Boyle Harris went and 
extra step for his solo on Women Be Wise. If you look at the back of the record, which I did today, um, for some unknown reason, he played uh, that tune uh, naked in front of her. I don't know why he did this. He was, but it's even written on here. Um. <laughs> the album took four weeks to record. We'd stay there during the week, and we'd come in and do our gig. We were playing at the joint bar, which was before the caboose, on Fridays and Saturdays. We used to play at the Triangle, where the horn section would walk down the bar playing and doing kicks. That's We were famous for that. And then when we first played there, half the band stood up on a cover over the pool table. The other half of the band stood on the floor. And then eventually they ended up building a stage that you had to climb up a ladder to get to with a railing around it. And so um, we tried to drink the guy out of business (laughs) with our free drinks. And so for that three weeks, we'd come and do the gig on Friday and Saturday. And for that time, Bonnie was one of our guitar players. And then when we brought um, A.C. Reed and Junior Wells out to play on the album, they came into town with us on the weekends and played. (laughs) Bonnie loved playing our stuff, too. Damn good guitar player. She knew her music, and she knew a lot of R&B tunes, too. So she wasn't just coasting or loafing. She, she was an integral part of the band. Not everybody loved Willie and the Bees' hard partying style, though. Dick Waterman, Bonnie's manager, was one of them. <laughs> he wanted to get Bonnie away from us as fast as he could. Jesus Christ, he could see things going up in smoke. He could see what a bad influence we were on her. Bonnie was drinking with us. Bonnie could throw down some liquor. Now, Bonnie eventually had to go into treatment, as did almost all the bees. Bonnie had a whole lot of fun with us, and that didn't suit Dick Waterman very well. Most of the band seriously abused alcohol. We were said to be the drunkest band in America, and everybody knew it. People would sometimes come to the bees' gigs to see if we could make it through the night on our feet. There was a music magazine back then in around 1971 called Connie's Insider. And they'd have caricatures on the cover of the magazine. And a caricature of the bees as us standing on stage, probably someplace like the Caboose Bar or the Joint Bar, us standing on stage in bottles and glasses and things, beer cans, all at our feet. And that was that was pretty pretty much accurate. The album's back cover features a group shot of the full troupe of musicians, friends, and pals. Eighteen people in total, seated and standing in two loose rows in front of the Chicago Bluesman's snazzy cars, parked bumper to bumper. Both A.C. Reed and Junior Wells came up from Chicago, each driving a Cadillac. And A.C. Reed drove himself, and Junior had a driver, Bob. And so whoever's idea it was, was to put the Cadillacs like that on a V. 
and for everybody to stand in the V of the Cadillacs. And, you know, we posed the shot. We spent half the afternoon out there to get the shot exactly the way they wanted it. <laughs> for the bunch of musicians, it's like herding cats. So, you know, it's a question of, you know, everybody talking in the some people looking at the camera, some people not. You can see the spontaneity in that photo and kind of fooling with taking the tire off and the tuba and all these different things. It's funny, I look at that picture and it, it takes me right back, right back to that day. At that point, we had uh, more or less finished the record and uh, and everybody was really happy. It, you know, it was a family. And you, and you can hear it. You can hear it on the record. And it all goes back to Bonnie. You know, in terms of saying, I, I want to have a party. I want to create this. I've got $40,000 from Warner Brothers. I can make any record I want, anywhere I want, any way I want. And this is what I want to do. It wasn't necessarily what Warner Brothers wanted her to do, though. I don't think they liked it. I don't think they liked it at all. I think they were really disappointed. They were disappointed in the uh, in the sound quality of it. You know, the mixes, uh, the whole thing. It is literally garage band, and it's very live-sounding. Other people would listen to it and go, oh, my God, how that's so poorly recorded. Why didn't they do this? You know, when you record on four track, unless you save a track, there's nothing to bounce to. So you can't record over something that's all recorded or you erase it. When you're recording, especially with a whole band, I mean, you have drums, bass, or acoustic guitar, electric guitar, horns, piano, lead vocal, background vocal. So everything has to be organized at the time. Uh, and this is really the first time that, that Dave had ever done that. So really, when you listen to the record, uh, it's beautiful. And it's, it was imperfection, and it essentially captures what Bonnie wanted to do. What struck listeners of the album, just the way Rate had when she'd started playing clubs, was how preternaturally mature an artist she was. Reviewing the album, the music trade magazine Cashbox pointed to her mean slide guitar and concluded, this is not a simple categorical debut. It's a most pleasant, eclectic reflection of herself. The Village Voice recommended her easy adult interpretations from an eclectic country blues-based repertoire supported by a nice, rolling backup. That December, Rate returned to Minneapolis as the opening act for Randy Newman at the Guthrie Theater. In a review of the show, the Minneapolis star mentioned Miss Rate's eight accompanists who wandered in and out at her suggestion. They were, of course, the Bumblebees, accompanied by A.C. Reed on sax. We went to St. Cloud and played an outdoor show on the athletic field at 90 degrees in July or something. It was Bonnie, uh, the Bees, Charlie Musselwhite, Big Mama Thornton, and a couple other people, all on that show. The Bees would sit in with Bonnie again when she played the Marigold Ballroom, a former big band ballroom on Nicolet Avenue in downtown Minneapolis in October of 1973. It was a cramped and sweaty audience of 1,700, the star reported, and Bonnie liked the Caboose, which she played in August of 1974, even more. The Bees opened for her at that show, too. 
Eventually, Bonnie Raitt became an American icon thanks to the Grammy-winning success of her 1989 album Nick of Time. Her brother Steve, who'd accompanied her to the Twin Cities to make her debut album, liked the place so much he stuck around, founding a state-of-the-art sound system company, ProLine, and working as a sound engineer for the Lamont Cranston Band and others. He and Dave Ray bonded pretty seriously. And when Dave Ray bought a piece of land up in Cushing, Minnesota, Steve and Dave were partners by that time. And they built a recording studio in Cushing, Minnesota. Literally built it like pouring slab in November. People didn't know. Both Bonnie and Steve were championship water skiers. And Steve was such a motorhead that uh, a Jeep that he had built out was on hot on the cover of Hot Rod magazine. I mean, he was, he was an engine builder. He had a ski boat that had like 350 horsepower plywood ski boat. It was amazing, 70 miles an hour. Bonnie also kept local ties through her brother and her old colleagues. She bought, Oh, you don't know, she bought property here. Bonnie bought land out on Bald Eagle Lake in White Bear Lake. She bought land there and a house that was on the property. She had it for many years. She had it for maybe 20 years. First thing they did when they got the house was <laughs> Steve put in a slalom course on the lake. Brought his ski boat out. And then we had a, a two-story houseboat called Ship of Fools. We had barbecue grills and things on the boat. We towed the boat and anchored out in the middle of the lake and tow out his ski boat to the ship of fools, and we'd go out on water skiing runs on the slalom course. After a long battle with brain cancer, Steve Raitt passed away in 2009. Minneapolis also lost Willie Murphy in January 2019. When Bonnie heard about his passing, she wrote a message for the crowd at his memorial concert. Our producer Cecilia Johnson was at that show at the Caboose in February 2019, and she watched host Bobby Vandell read that message for the crowd. I promised you that I would uh, read to you what, what Bonnie Raitt wrote, so I'd like to read it to you. This is from Bonnie Raitt. Hello from Tulsa, here out on tour. I'm sorry I couldn't be there with you to celebrate Willie in person, but I'm there with you in spirit. What an incredible lineup and how perfect that you're right there at the caboose. I still can't believe that he's gone. Willie really changed my life in so many ways. Producing my first album back in 1971, he taught me how to make records work with a band, and most importantly, how to stay absolutely true to what I knew sounded right for me alone. It's how he lived and played his music all his life. I also shared with him, along with John, Dave, and Tony, an aversion to bending any part of myself to fit the norms of what the music business might think would sell. Hold up. 
It's that same fierce maverick streak that kept him criminally underappreciated outside the Twin Cities. But his influence and appreciation by those who really know will be his lasting legacy. He was a musical genius, a virtuoso trailblazer as a songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, horn arranger, and producer, and truly one of the most badass singers any of us will ever be lucky to hear. Some of my favorite memories will always be of Willie and the Bees gigs right there at the Caboose and the Joint. With my brother Steve at the soundboard and hanging with some of the best musicians, many of you are there tonight. Still one of the finest, funkiest music scenes in America. I'm so grateful to have known Willie. May we continue to celebrate him in the music we play. The shit we don't take and the promises to keep the music as funky as it is real. We'll miss you, Will. Have a great party today in his honor and play one for me. I send my love to all of you. That's from Bonnie Ray. The Current Rewind is produced by Cecilia Johnson. Michelangelo Matos is our writer, Marisa Gonzalez-Morseth is our research assistant, and Brett Baldwin is our managing producer. Our theme music is Winging It by Laserbeak from the album Luther. Johnny Vince Evans mastered this episode. Thanks to our guests, Eugene Hoffman, Maurice Jaycox, Sin Collins, Spider John Kerner, Julie Height, and Freebo. Thanks to Folk Alley and Bonnie Raitt for giving us permission to use archived interview audio. And thanks to Willie Murphy for all the music. Blues musician Paul Metza and the team at the West Tonka Historical Society also provided valuable insight for this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to The Current Rewind so you can catch every episode of Side B. And rate and review the podcast while you're at it. Go to thecurrent.org slash rewind to find transcripts, past episodes, and bonus materials. The Current Rewind is made possible in part by the Minnesota Legacy Amendments Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. It is a production of Minnesota Public Radio's The Current. Yeah.